sermon I'm going to give this morning was really the first one that I thought of. It's, it's one of those uh, texts that we're going to look at that I hope, I, I pray, and I believe will invite us to consider prayer and sort of take the pressure off. Uh, why don't we pray? There's so many different reasons. I, I think the text we're going to look at this morning will address two of those reasons. One reason that we might not pray, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but it's definitely happened to me, is we might feel that we've disqualified ourselves somehow by perhaps our recent behavior. Uh, if you have fallen into sin or if you are in relational conflict, sometimes you, you know you ought to pray, but you just feel so far away from God and you feel, well, I, I have disqualified myself from being able to come before the throne of God's great power. Of course, if we can remember the book of Hebrews, we say, well, it's also the throne of God's grace for those who are in Christ. But sometimes we don't pray because we feel for some reason, perhaps over the long term or just in the short term, we've disqualified ourselves, that God won't hear us. God doesn't want to hear from us. That's one reason. Second reason that I hear, especially for prayer meetings, when we gather together to pray. Why don't we pray? Why won't you come to a prayer meeting when a prayer meeting is called? Or if, if we are gathered together in a prayer meeting, why is it so hard sometimes to speak up? Have you ever had that experience? You know, oh, I, I feel the Holy Spirit leading me to pray, but I'm just, ah, I can't get the words out. I open my mouth and nothing comes out. Not that you need to vocalize or verbalize in order to be praying, but sometimes we get stuck because we feel, well, wait, I just don't have the right words. I don't know what to say. And maybe I have the words, but I don't know how to say it. What should my tone be? What should my posture be like? What if somebody says, well, that wasn't pious enough, or I didn't say exactly the right thing, or I didn't say it in exactly the right way? And so all of a sudden, uh, this moment of prayer where we're supposed to be talking to God it becomes clouded by what will other people think. Or if you're alone, you could still have this problem. I might say it out loud or I might say something in my mind and I'm still not sure that I've unlocked God's heart by the words that I've used or the way that I've said the thing that I've said. Have you ever felt that way? Any of these ways? Either you've disqualified yourself over the long term or the short term because of things you've done or didn't do. Or perhaps you would like to pray, but you don't know what to say. And even if you had the words, you don't know how you ought to say them. I think these are hurdles for a lot of us. And so this morning what I want to do is take the pressure right off. Today we're going to discover that we needn't feel that way. We're going to do this by looking at two prayers, great prayers, of Samson. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think on prayer and as we open your scriptures to talk about prayer, I ask that you would unloose our hearts and our tongues so that we would be a praying people and that we would pray to you just as we are. Not worried about what others might think or what you might think or what we think of ourselves, but trusting in your grace and knowing that you simply want to hear from us by faith. Help me to preach this morning. And I pray that the words that I say would be pleasing to you and that they would be helpful to our church. Holy Spirit, we invite you to help us to be a praying people. Help us to pray when we're alone, when we're with our spouse, when we are with our families, when we are in the car. Help us to pray when we are gathered together with the church. Help us to come together simply to pray. And in all that we do, would we be prayerful about it so we might walk by the Spirit and in your grace. Glorify yourself. Build up your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Before we take a look at Samson's prayer, it's really important that we have some idea of who Samson is. Now, most of us have some knowledge of Satan's. We've been, uh, some knowledge of Samson. We've been acquainted with him before, but I don't want to take that for granted. 
I want to just introduce you to him in brief. When did Samson live? Well, he lived during the time of the judges. So this is after Moses. Moses had brought the people to the edge of the promised land. He died up on Mount Nebo. And then Joshua took the people into the promised land. And for a period of time, some 200 years perhaps, there was no king in Israel. And so this was what's called the period of the judges. And every tribe kind of looked after itself. But even the tribes didn't have a very good administrative base. And so it was clan by clan, family by family, all under God. So this was a pure theocracy without any centralized leadership. Problem was that people would follow God for a time, and then this family would go and do their own thing. That family would worship other gods. And before you knew it, there was a movement throughout the tribes, throughout the clans, throughout the families, where they would be worshiping for other gods. They'd be sinning against God's covenant. And so God, just as He promised through Moses, would bring in foreign oppressors. And so we see in the book of Judges a cycle of sin. They would be at peace with God, Then they would sin. And then God would oppress them with the Philistines or the Moabites or some other local tribe or clan or nation. Just as He said. And this was an act of discipline that God would bring to His people to sort of shake them up and wake them up and say, you're not following Me and you need to repent. And so that's the next thing. That this oppression would lead the people to cry out to God. They say, God, we've sinned. And we know that You've brought the Philistines in to discipline us. Please deliver us and forgive us for our sins. So God would do that. And God would raise up a judge. Now, judge, when we think of judge, we think of somebody who will hear a court case and decide who's guilty and who's not guilty. But the, the word in Hebrew is mispat. And what that really means is the right ordering of something. And so God would send a man to reorder the society so that it was rightly ordered again under God. And so these judges were mostly military leaders. That they would return the people to a right worship of God and in so doing, God would use this judge to take away the foreign oppression and so on. And they'd be saved. And then there would be peace in the land again. for a a generation, for a number of years, and then the people would sin again and we go around this cycle. In the book of Judges, we go around this cycle 12 times. And and it's not as though they're just going around and around and they come back to the beginning and they're in the same place again. This is a downward spiral. Every time they go around this sin cycle, the the condition of their society, society devolves and denigrates so that even when they're back at peace, they're not quite where they were just a generation ago. And so that's really important to understand sort of the context of who Samson is. Samson is the sixth major judge and the twelfth of twelve judges in the book of Judges. And so if, if we're in a downward spiral, by the time we get to Samson, we're at the bottom of the pile. We're at the bottom of the barrel. And every time we go around this cycle, the quality of the judge denigrates just a little bit as well. So so by the time you get to Samson, yeah, God is is working through Samson. He's going to deliver His people through Samson. He's going to answer their prayers through Samson. And yet, we're going to see, because we're at the end of the book of Judges, a very flawed man. He's not the kind of guy that you point to and say, son, I want you to be like Samson. This is the worst of the judges. At the end of the book of Judges, you know what happens right after the book of Judges, or right after Samson's judgeship? Total chaos. Total breakdown of the society. And so we're near the bottom by the time we get to Samson. Well, what do we know about Samson? There's four things I want to highlight about Samson's biography before we look at his two prayers in the book. Number one, we are introduced to Samson with a miraculous birth story. And so, 
at the very, in, in the beginning of his biography, we have the angel of the Lord showing up to his parents and declaring that they are going to have a miraculous son. A son who God is going to use to deliver his people. And, and this scene, when, when, when the angel of the Lord, which is the pre-incarnate Christ, shows up to Manoah and his wife, Samson's parents, and says, your son is going to be great. We, there's really nothing that we can compare this to in the Bible except the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. So this is very perplexing. Because by the time we get to John, and then obviously with Jesus, we're at a high mark in salvation history. And now we have a very similar introduction to Samson, but with Samson, we're at a, almost a low mark. I believe what God is trying to say to us here is, I am the God of grace at the high times and at the low times. So yeah, John gets this amazing introduction in the book of Luke. Jesus gets this amazing introduction in, to his birth. But so does Samson. Right before uh, God's people unravel into total chaos and total depravity. God is making a statement. I am the God of grace from top to bottom. And I can do great things in you and for you, whether it's, it's at the top or the bottom. But at the very beginning of Samson's story, we have high hopes for him. We think, okay, finally, here's the one who's going to deliver God's people for good. It's not the case. Second thing that we learn about Samson is that he is a Nazarite from the womb. So when the angel of the Lord comes to Manoah and his wife, he says, your son is going to be great. I'm going to do great things through him. And he's going to be a Nazarite, not to be confused with a Nazarene. I can't help but wonder, is there an intentional wordplay there, but I have no proof? The top and the bottom, Nazarene and a Nazarite. But a Nazarite, we're just going to take a quick look at what a Nazarite is, because it's not a concept that we're that familiar with, but in order to understand Samson's biography, in order to really glean the most out of his prayers, we have to understand who God said Samson was to be. God had set Samson apart to do great things. He had set him apart by making him a Nazarite from the womb. What that means is all the things that a Nazarite vows to do, that started before he was even born. And Manoah's wife, the, the mother of Samson, was told, you need to begin these Nazarite vows even now. While you're, uh, when you conceive this child, you begin those Nazarite vows then. So just open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 6. I just want to read nine verses. We're not going to look at this for very long, but I want to pull three things out of this that are really essential for us to understand the life of Samson. So Numbers chapter 6. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair uh, on his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. And if any man dies very suddenly beside him and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing and on the seventh day he shall shave it. And then we won't read anymore, but it goes on and then you start over again. So if you happen upon a corpse or somebody dies, you're, you're having supper with them and they just have a heart attack and they die, you have to shave, cleanse yourself and start over 
for whatever it is, the, the amount of time that you vowed to do. So if you know anything about Samson, these things should have struck you. The first thing about a Nazarite is they are to not come into contact with grapes or anything that comes from grapes, whether it be wine, juice, vinegar. You can't eat the skin of a grape. You can't eat a grape. Now this seems like, well, kind of arbitrary to us, but this is a massive sacrifice in that ancient culture, especially if you're living in Judah at that time because their number one crop was grapes. But, but wine was such a part of their culture. Grapes was such a part of their culture. To separate yourself from grapes is to separate yourself from the worship life of, of the community, to separate yourself from the family life of the community, and to separate yourself from the celebratory life of the community. And so for whatever time it is that you were a Nazarite, and, and it was only supposed to be for a time, you know, one week, one month, six months, a year, you, you set the time, it's totally voluntary usually, but you set the time and it's for that amount of time. And for, for whatever reason, you set yourself aside and you say, this is a time where I, I want to grow closer to the Lord. So no grapes. Secondly, and this is what we really know about uh, Samson, right? No razor. What do you know about Samson? Two things probably. He was strong and he had long hair. Right? So that comes right out of here. He was a Nazarite from the womb. No razor ever touched his body anywhere. And so, again, this was to just separate him from everybody else. Everybody else, they could groom themselves. If you're a Nazarite, you don't groom yourself. He shall be holy. It's not that long hair is any holier than short hair, I hope. But it's that this is one way in which you say, I am separating myself and I am demonstrating my separation by the fact that no razor is going to touch my head. Third thing, you're not to go near a dead body. Even if your mom or your dad dies, you don't go to the funeral. If your brother or sister dies, you can't be a pallbearer at their funeral. You separate yourself from all things that are dead. Even in the preparing of food, I imagine you're not to go near a corpse. Now, if it's prepared, I don't know. I have to go through and read the fine print. What do you eat then? Well, that's a little bit different if it's prepared, but you don't kill the animal to prepare it for food. So these are the three things about a Nazarite. Now, what do we know about Samson? Well, let's take a look. No grapes. Flip over to Judges chapter 14. The thing about Samson, before we take a look at these things, is that what the angel of the Lord said to Samson's mother is, this son of yours will be a Nazarite for his entire life. I have set him apart for his entire life. From the moment of conception until his death, he is set apart for me. He is to keep these Nazarite vows. And that begins with you. And so with Samson's mom while she was pregnant, no grapes. And this is actually a really fascinating text for our pro-life position, right? If Samson wasn't a person until he came out of his mother, then she could have all the grapes she wanted. But the Bible is so clear that he was a person from conception forward with all the rights and privileges. He was set apart as a Nazarite from conception. And so, because his mother controlled what food he got, she was to have no grapes, so this was for life. God was trying to make a point to his people about his relationship with them through the life of Samson. And Samson was going to set himself apart. God was going to do great things through him. And then we are introduced to Samson. Number one, in chapter 14, verse 5. Remember, no grapes. We just meet Samson in verse 1. We're only in the fifth verse of his biography. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. We don't want to make too much of this. But if you read all of Samson's life, you read all of his biography. 
if you even read the first four verses of his biography, he wants to marry a Philistine woman. That's what we learn in those first four verses. His mom and dad say, I don't know. That just is not a good idea. You're a Nazarite, Samson. You're set apart by God. What kind of message does that send to God's people that you don't even want to marry among God's people? Okay, we learn that he's impulsive. Whatever was good to his eyes. There's a refrain in the book of Judges that says, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In Samson's life, right at the very beginning, he sees a Philistine woman and she was right in his eyes. We learn something about Samson. He's impulsive. He's appetite-driven. He's not self-controlled. If you look at his first words up in verse 2, the translators have done him a great service by smoothing this over, but he kind of grunts this command to his parents. I saw a daughter of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Those are his first words. That's what we know of Samson. And really, it's even more gruff. Get her for me. It, he's demanding. So, with that kind of personality, should he be waltzing through a vineyard? He's not supposed to eat any grapes. He's not the kind of guy that I would let loose in a vineyard and, and trust him not to pick a grape. Now, we don't know that he does that. It doesn't say that. But I find it interesting that right when he gets into the vineyard, a young lion comes toward him roaring. Interesting. Just let that hang. Second thing that we know about uh, a Nazarite vow is that you're not to come into contact with a dead body. So this lion comes toward him roaring, picking up in verse 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. I'd already cited that before. So, so in, the, in the, just the book of Judges, we, we just have an uncomfortable feeling here. Here's a Nazarite who rips a lion to death. Now he is now therefore in the presence of a corpse breaking one of his Nazarite vows. Now you might say, but the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, so doesn't that validate what he does? This is one of the very difficult things about Samson's life, is that the Spirit of the Lord always rushes upon him when he's doing something uh, impetuous and impulsive. Uh, and, and so you have to ask, does that mean that God is condoning or even causing these things to happen? Or is it an expression of God's grace in his life? Whether or not we want to fault uh, Samson for killing the lion, maybe it was self-defense and so he's off uh, on a technicality, we cannot excuse him of what comes next in verse 8. After some days, he returned to take his wife, to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. Now the, the language here is very clear. The carcass. A Nazarite's not to go near a dead body. But he is again in the same vineyard. It's a problem. And he, while he's in the vineyard and we're worried that he might touch a grape, he says, let me go and inspect the carcass of the dead lion that I killed with my own two hands. So he goes, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. And he scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Now forget for a moment that Samson's a Nazarite. Any Israelite that went to a dead lion and scooped honey out of the lion is making himself unclean, unfit to worship. And there's a whole set of, of cleansing rituals that he would have to go through. Then he takes his uncleanness and he contaminates his mom and his dad. Doesn't tell them, oh, by the way, I scooped this honey from the carcass of a dead lion, making myself unclean, breaking my Nazarite vow, and now I'm going to make you unknowingly unclean. 
So he breaks his vow there absolutely. So there's one absolute violation of his Nazarite vow. Probably we can guess he has eaten a grape though we can't prove it. And in the process, he makes his mom and his dad unclean. Go down to verse 19 in chapter 14. And again, we have this very uncomfortable, and I'm not going to resolve it today because it's not our point, but the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him again. And he went down to Ashkelon and he struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. So this is, he tells a riddle at his wedding. And he makes a wager with his, his wedding party, 30 men. If you solve the riddle, I'll give you each a coat. And if, if you don't solve the riddle, you each give me a coat. They solve the riddle. And so he's mad and he goes and he kills 30 men to pay off his debt. Clearly violating his Nazarite vow there. Then go down to chapter 15, verses 14 and 15. When he came, came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him again every time. When he's doing something that I would say is ambiguous at best and a, a contradiction, a violation of his Nazarite vow, more likely. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck 1,000 men. And so this is just that the men of Judah had tied him up to deliver him over to the Philistines because they were looking for him. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. He breaks it and he kills a thousand men. Again, breaking his Nazarite vow. Now we have the third part of a Nazarite vow, which is no razor shall touch your head. Go to chapter 16. We know this story about Samson and Delilah, right? She wanted to know the secret of his strength. Finally, after seven tries, he, he relents and he tells her. Verse 15. Delilah said to him, How can you say you, I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and you've not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. What happens later that night? You know the story. Delilah, while he's sleeping, shaves his head. The Philistines come in. Samson believes that the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon him. Just as the Spirit of the Lord had rushed upon him so many times previous in his life. But this time, the Spirit of the Lord does not rush upon him. He's captured. The Philistines take out his eyes. They chain him up. They take him to their palace. Then they make him tread the grain like an ox until later in his life, while they're at this great feast and this great festival, they say, bring out Samson, that man that caused us so much trouble, that man who made us quake with fear that we may ridicule him and mock him and mock his God. And so they bring out Samson, who's humbled now, and he's blind, and he can't see, and he's, he's, he's got no hair, though it started to grow again. And they start to make fun of him. Where is Samson's strength? Why did the Spirit of the Lord rush upon him even while he was breaking his Nazarite vows? One of the, the wrong interpretations of Samson's life is that his strength was in his hair. He's not Superman or Spider-Man. He, he's not a Marvel superhero that, oh, the strength of Samson is in his hair. His strength was in the Lord and in the grace of his God. And, and God continued to bless him with all kinds of strength. That's what it means that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him even as he was being selfish, brutish, impulsive. Even while he was breaking his vows, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and gave him supernatural strength because even in the sin of Samson, God had vowed to do something great through him for the sake of God's people. But when, when Samson broke the last of his Nazarite vows, 
God says, that's enough. I'm not going to deliver you this time. And so he lost his eyes. That's the context then for these two great prayers. One last thing, though, before we get, sorry, there's one other thing. Before we get to the first prayer of Samson, one last thing we need to know about Samson. Yes, he was selfish. Yes, he was driven by appetite. Yes, he was impulsive. Yes, he was aggressive. Yes, he was vindictive. But he was also a man of faith. How do you put these two things together? Well, how do I know that he was a man of faith? These two prayers that we're going to look at will show you. But I know, I can say 100% sure that Samson was a man of faith justified by God's grace because the writer of Hebrews says so. In Hebrews 11, verse 32. He says, I don't have enough time to tell you about, and then he lists all these people, Jephthah and Samson and Samuel. Samson is, is in the hall of faith. He is, he is one of the men that God, that God, through the writer of Hebrews, says, look to him. Don't imitate everything about him, but imitate his faith. In spite of everything that we know about Samson, in spite of the fact that he broke his Nazarite vows, he was a man of faith. And so with all that, we have very little left to do but look at the prayers. The first prayer of Samson is in Judges 15, verse 18. And this is the prayer after he had been tied up by his own people because the Philistines wanted to destroy the whole city. Samson says, just tie me out, deliver me, and, and save yourselves. So they tied him up. The Philistines came. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And the, the rope that was around him melted like flag. That is, he just broke through them with brute strength. The strength that God gave him. And then he killed 1,000 Philistines, a great victory. Now you can imagine if you broke through ropes and then you picked up the jawbone of a donkey. Oh, I didn't mention that. That was also breaking his Nazarite vow. And then you killed 1,000 Philistines just with the jawbone of a donkey. You have exerted a lot of energy. You have lost a lot of water through sweat, and I'm sure he lost a significant amount of blood. I can't prove it, but if you're in a battle with a thousand men, I, I doubt he got out of that without a few scrapes and nicks and bruises. And so by the time you get down here into verse 18, of course, he's near dead. Now look at his prayer in verse 18. Well, let's just go up to verse 17. As soon as he had finished celebrating his victory, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramath Lehi. Verse 18. And he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. So far, so good, right? Do you see the you see the faith there? You, God, have granted this salvation. You've saved me from these thousand Philistines by my hand. And he calls himself the servant of God, which shows that he rightly places himself under God. So we see his faith. But now look at the rest. This is vintage Samson coming up. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? This is just very rude. Okay, God, yes, you gave me this great victory. What, now you're going to let me die of thirst? That's, I think that would be about how it came out of his lips. That's great that you saved me, but now you're going to let me die of thirst. It, this is selfish. It's rude. It's brutish. On the other hand, it's faithful. Even in this abrupt prayer. What? Now you're going to let me die? 
He has faith that God can save him. It's not polished. It's not refined. There's no these and thous. It's, it's to the point, it's Samson talking like Samson to God. And in this prayer, Samson recognizes who God was. He is the God who gave this great salvation. He recognizes who he is, the servant of God. He recognizes that God gave him this great strength. And he trusted God's power to provide him with water to meet his thirst. It would have been a lot nicer if he had prayed this way. Oh, Lord God, my great Father, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And now, O oh Lord, would you please continue to deliver your servant by granting that you, O oh Lord, would open this rock and allow streams of living water to flow out to nourish not only my physical body, but my spiritual soul. Right? You see how that is kind of a more acceptable prayer in some circles because it, it has the right tone. It, it's using some of the right words, but he doesn't say that. He says, God, I'm going to die. You're going to let me die? He's to the point. He's Samson being Samson. And look at God's response. He doesn't correct him. He doesn't discipline him. He split open the hollow place that is at Lehi and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned and he revived. God was gracious. This was a great prayer. It was full of faith. And it was Samson talking like Samson. Now we go to the second prayer. In chapter 16, verse 28. And in this prayer, this is when Samson, his, his eyes have been taken out. He's been treading grain. He's been a beast of burden for the Philistines. They're having this great festival, this great feast. They bring out Samson that we may mock him and his God, that we may celebrate over his humiliation. And so they bring Samson out, and he's kind of feeble. He can't sort of see where he's going. He's walking, and they, they put him out there, and everyone begins to laugh. And everybody begins to scorn him. They begin to make fun of Samson's God. And they celebrate Dagon, their own God. And so Samson has this classic prayer. Verse 28. Samson called to the Lord and said, Oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. Oh God. Stop there. That's a good prayer. He's got a couple of Lord gods and O oh gods. And he, and he recognizes that the source of his strength was not in his hair after all. The source of his strength was in God. But now look how he finishes up. That I may be avenged on the Philistines. So far so good. Because they are mocking you, O oh God. And I have embarrassed you by breaking my Nazarite vows. I have been selfish and impulsive and vindictive. I haven't taken seriously that you had set me apart. I haven't taken seriously that, that my mother went to great lengths to set me apart. That you could do great things through me. And I've made a mess of my life, oh God. Please have mercy on me and strengthen me and use me for your glory. That would have been a good prayer. It's not what he prays. Oh Lord God, please remember and please strengthen me only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines from my two eyes. He doesn't get it. God has been gracious with him his entire life, and he's still just thinking about himself. When he's out there hearing the people mocking him and mocking the Lord God of Israel, all he can think about is his two eyes. He takes no responsibility for how he lost his two eyes. 
in some ways, this is a terrible prayer. But it's a great prayer. Because it's Samson being Samson. Sometimes our kids are like this, right? Sometimes our kids say and do the exact opposite thing that they ought to have said or done. But our spirit rushes upon them to deliver them in their time of need regardless. Our spirit rushes upon them to love them. They've broken what we've asked them to do all morning long, and by lunchtime, we're giving them food to eat. We tuck them in at bed. We tell them that we love them. We pray for them. What I love about God's relationship with Samson is that it is so paternal. It's so fatherly. It's so gracious. And here's Samson, whom God loves. Like, there's no debate. God loves Samson. And Samson can't look past himself and God still loves him. And God says, okay, Samson, my son, not a great prayer, but there's some good things about it. You know who I am and you know that I'm able to strengthen you. At the very least, you see the source of your strength is me. I'm going to honor that. And sometimes with our children, we have to almost pull the merit out of a situation. You know, not a good situation, but there's this redeeming aspect to it. And God says, okay, I will. And God strengthens Samson and answers his prayer. And in so doing, God not only gives Samson what he wants, because his prayer continues in verse 30, let me die with the Philistines. God grants his prayer, gives him strength, and allows him to die with the Philistines. The end of a tragic life. But in the process, God glorifies himself. Even though that really wasn't on the forefront of Samson's mind. And what we're told at the end of Samson's biography is that in the death of Samson, it, when Samson is placed between these two pillars and he pushes these pillars over and the whole temple comes down on him and on the Philistines, you have to remember that all the most powerful, the richest Philistines are there. He accomplishes a greater victory in the death of Samson than throughout any other battle or all of the battles of Samson combined. And it's in the death of Samson that he delivers his people. There is a gospel move here, by the way, that is by the death of Christ. Now, we don't want to say that Jesus is just like Samson, and yet it's by the death of Christ and the death of Samson that God glorifies himself and brings about a great victory for his people. And they're both in this position. But what I want to focus in on is the grace of God at work in Samson's prayer life. So why were these great prayers? Because they were authentic prayers. You know, when I, when I put words in Samson's mouth and suggested that this would be a better prayer, how dare I do that? Because those prayers would would not have come from the heart of Samson. And they would have been hypocritical, false prayers. Prayers that God actually would not have been that pleased with. So I set them forth as an alternative to the way that Samson prayed, and yet I am suggesting to you that woe is me if I suggest to you that those would have been better prayers. Because what God wants is the heart of a man, the heart of a woman. He wants us to speak to Him as we are. He wants us. He wants you. He doesn't want some, some polished, varnished, plaster saint version of yourself. He doesn't want you to project yourself over here into something that isn't real. He doesn't want you to change who you are when you go to Him in prayer. He wants you. He wants you to use the words that you use at work and at home and at play. He wants you to come with, with everything that you are. 
And so when we start putting words in Samson's mouth, those aren't better prayers. They're the prayers that we in the church might consider and evaluate to be better, but they're worse. Because they're not Samson's words. They don't come from Samson's heart. Samson's prayers are great prayers of the Bible because they are Samson being Samson. And it would have been disingenuous for Samson to be anyone else or to say anything else. He spoke to God just as he was. So they were great prayers because they are authentic prayers. Therefore, in our prayer life, whether you are alone or whether you're in the company of other people, what is a great prayer coming off your lips? What is a great prayer coming out of your heart? The greatest prayer is when you are yourself with God in prayer, using words that you use, thoughts that you have, tone that matches who you are. Next time you're in a prayer service or when you, that time and it go, it's going around the circle and your palms are getting sweaty, your heartbeat is beginning to accelerate because it's your turn soon. And you could say pass, but ah, oh, this time I really got to do it. Just be yourself. Stumble over the prayer. If, if you're a stumbler in conversation, stumble in your prayer. Don't, in that moment, think, I need to become a better theologian. Where whatever theology you have, use that theology to pray. And if you don't normally read the King James Bible, don't refer to God as thee and thou. If you are, but if, if you are just dripping in the King James Bible, that's a great way to pray. What's your voice? Pray in your voice. Second reason that these are great prayers, and with this I'll be done. These prayers, as in the whole life of Samson, showcase the grace of God. You know, your prayers, whether you're alone or with others, are not really about you as much as they're about God. And if, if your prayers are dripping with the grace of God, they're great prayers. How, how is a prayer dripping with the grace of God? Well, if your prayer requires the grace of God, then it's a great prayer. These prayers required the deep grace of God. And they came from a man whose life needed the deep grace of God. And this reminds us that Samson was approved by God because God is a God of grace, not because Samson was a great guy. Samson probably wouldn't be an elder of this church. But he's in the hall of faith. And we're reminded of Romans 3.25. that God sent forth Jesus in the fullness of time to propitiate sin. What does that mean? The wrath of God that should have fallen on sinners fell on Jesus Christ. That makes sense to us because we live after the cross. Right? It makes sense that, okay, no, if I stumble and mess up, then the wrath of God is already poured out. But the next line in verse 25 is really important. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. The life of Samson and the prayers of Samson cannot be called great without the cross of Christ. God is not a righteous God if he allows Samson to pray to him the way he does. If he allows Samson to break his Nazarite vows the way that he does. If God can love Samson the way Samson is, that God's not righteous. Unless. God was able to receive the life of Samson, able to receive the prayers of Samson because all of the wrath that Samson deserved was held back 
and poured out on Christ. So, this is our last thought. When we are praying to God, the pressure is off because the wrath of God has fallen on Christ, so we are free to speak and to babble to God like children. Children whom God loves. In God's divine forbearance, he had passed over Samson's sins so that by grace he could receive Samson's prayers. The same is true for us. You don't need to be a scholar or a great, great theologian or to use flowery language or to have the right posture or even the right intent. By God's grace, through the cross of Christ, if you are His son, if you are His daughter, He loves your prayers. If you are talking to Him as you are, but he doesn't want us to pretend to be someone else. Therefore, when we pray, let us be sure to be ourselves. Talk like yourself. Use the words you normally use. Sound like yourself. Use the tone of voice that you normally use. Think like yourself. Use the theology and knowledge that you have. But most importantly, embrace Christ like yourself. Cherish His propitiation like yourself. Remind yourself that the throne of God is open for your prayers to ascend to Him because Jesus has cleared the way. And then talk. And be yourself, and God will hear them. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would help us to learn from Samson. I ask that you would help us to be ourselves in prayer, uh, and that means that our prayer life should all sound different. Uh, we want to be authentic coming to you as children who don't have it all together. We, we haven't achieved perfection. We're not in glory. We, we do struggle with sin. We are, uh, to various degrees at various times, selfish and self-absorbed. Uh, so Lord, thank you that uh, you've paid for all that through the cross of Christ and you've opened a channel of prayer for us where we can just be ourselves and sound like ourselves and use words that we would normally use. So Lord, I pray for us as a church, please take the pressure off. We don't have to have it all together. We haven't disqualified ourselves and we don't need special words. Comfort us with this message in Christ's name. Amen.